part of the problem with all of this is actually defining conspiracy theory. Psychology nerds, and welcome to another episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I'm Allison Jane Martingano, the new host of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here with a very special guest. Regular listeners will know him as the founding host of Psychology and Stuff, and UWGB students will know him as the Dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences. It's Dr. Ryan Martin. How are you doing, Ryan? I am doing great. Thank you so much. It's so good to be back. This is going to be really fun for what I what I anticipate being kind of a tough and thought-provoking episode. Yeah, yeah. Getting into conspiracies. Yes. Always a tough subject. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But before we get in, though, I want to know, have you become a regular listener of psychology and stuff? And if I, not, why not? <laughs> yes, I am uh, as regular a listener as I can. I'm not a regular listener to many podcasts right now that I have that I have gone to, but I have them on a list of uh, of episodes that are downloaded to my phone that I get to when I can. So, um, right, so what you're telling me is I'm on your to do list. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. No, I I love it. Um, it's great. I did. Uh, I the, the episode recently, and I, I'm gonna forget the, her name, Sarah Conrad. Yes. At, did I did I do it right? You got it right. Excellent. And Jason Cowell, that was fantastic. Um, super super happy. I can't listen to ones I'm in uh, oh, because okay. hearing my own voice is devastating to me. So yeah, no, I get yeah, that. So I've had I've had several listeners comment on the fact that my accent goes in and out of British and American during the podcast. Uh, so interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Are they are they suggesting that maybe you're not really British? Is that what they're getting at? I, I think there's just a general confusion as oh. <laughs> why this is happening. What is wrong with I'm, me? This is our our newest conspiracy theory. <laughs> From uh, what I can tell, maybe Allison Jane isn't really British and that she's a spy. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah. Although I think if I was, I'd be doing a better job of it. Yeah. Well. Yeah. In progress. You're a spy in progress. This is like a <laughs> pract a practice round. <laughs> Anyway, so we've, we've already given the, the game up, but to, yeah. today we're going to be talking about conspiracy theories and uh, specifically whether angry people are more likely to believe in conspiracy theories. But before we get into those details, I do want to ask you, Ryan, is there any conspiracy theories that you personally believe in? I mean, I think so this we're about to get into this, right? The, the, the definition of a conspiracy theory uh, leaves me wanting. So I, I guess what I would say is, I know that conspiracies exist, uh, and I know that, and I do not, I get accused of this all the time um, on social media that like of trusting the government uh, implicitly or the government's never lied to us, et cetera, et cetera. I do not believe that. I believe that the government has and continues to lie in various ways. For me, though, what is most important is that I will, um, I need evidence. I need legit evidence to support the existence of a conspiracy um and i i you know f for me to to believe it and i think more often than not for me that's one of the sort of the the defining elements here is if there's no evidence yet people continue to believe this thing that's when i i have a, a problem if I've been in denial for a little while of some sort of conspiracy and then ultimately um, some data comes out and says, hey, no, this really did happen. Look, I'll I'll say I'm sorry. Um, you know, I won't say I'm sorry. And here's why I won't is because I was right 
to want the evidence uh, in the first place. I may have been wrong in in thinking it's real, but I was right to want evidence before uh, before I, I believe it. All right. You're sounding like a proper scientist right now. Right? <laughs> yeah, how dare I? Yeah. How dare I? <laughs> the reason why I was prompted to ask you that question, actually, was because I was talking about doing this episode um, with my dad. And I was I was talking about the moon landing conspiracy, which, in case mm-hmm. you don't know, is the idea that Neil Armstrong didn't really walk on the moon in 1969, but it was all recorded in a movie studio. And my dad was appalled that people didn't believe this really happened. So he recalls watching it on TV as a younger man and was actually really upset when I told him that some people didn't believe this had really happened. But then I asked him about the assassination of JFK, which I know he doesn't believe the official narrative on that one. And he will tell you all about like the magic bullet and how it's impossible and how there must be a second shooter. But he wouldn't consider his beliefs around the JFK assassination to be a conspiracy. He'd consider those to be true. So I guess what I'm asking here is why do we think of some things as conspiracies and we think of other things as fact? Yeah, that is totally fair. And um, I'm curious, I'm wondering if your dad was maybe uh, inspired on the JFK front, was maybe inspired the same way I would have been uh, by the movie JFK? Did that shape his thinking at all? Do you know? Oh, you know, I wish I'd have asked him, but I didn't. Okay. So because I was young, I suspect that movie came out when I was in high school and I was particularly, I think, uh, I don't know, intellectually fragile in the sense that I was a young person and I'm seeing this movie and it sure paints a picture of what that conspiracy looks like. Um, I mean, I think that uh, I mean, I guess a way of thinking about it is we should acknowledge is that um Again, depending on how we define conspiracy theory, that a conspiracy theory or a conspiracy can either be accurate or inaccurate, right? That that the existence, I have a theory that the government did X, Y, or Z, or that so-and-so does X, Y, or Z, that that, that theory can either be proven right or proven wrong. Um, and then I guess the question is according to who and with what evidence and so on. Sounds like on the JFK front, and I don't I will just go on record as saying I lack the requisite knowledge to know if the if the official JFK narrative is is accurate or not. Um, as a young person, I was swayed by a movie. I don't know that I'd continue to be swayed by that by that particular argument. But I think that the question then becomes, well, how do you decide? How, how do we decide if it's true according to who uh, and so on? And I, I, I don't necessarily I know when I believe it um, or when I think there's enough evidence. Um, but I know uh, other people feel differently or require less or more evidence sometimes. Yeah. So let's get into that. So while okay. covering for this episode, uh, I, I did actually go and look up the definition of a conspiracy Good. theory, and I decided to go to the dictionary because that seems like a fair place to start. Okay. So according to the dictionary, a conspiracy theory is a belief that some secret but influential organization is responsible for an event or phenomenon. So okay. do you agree with that definition yeah, I think that more or less captures it. Um, I mean, I think that so it it, it didn't spe- doesn't specify government. I notice it's like some powerful organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, is kind of responsible for some sort of behind the scenes uh, work to to create something. I, I think that more or less covers it. We have a tendency to assume that those conspiracy theories are. Um, are false 
that they aren't accurate, but I'm not sure that's necessarily fair. Uh, I think there are some conspiracy theories that that could end up being true. Um, one issue I have, and this is something I know we'll talk about related to some posts I did on social media. Um, one issue I have, though, is I think sometimes people sort of uh, backward engineer things, meaning that data comes out and says, or information comes out and says, government did X, Y, or Z. And then people say, see, that's a conspiracy theory that was proven true. But I'm not sure in some of those cases, there was a big active conspiracy theory prior to the information getting out. That that the And that's what I mean by people sort of backwards engineering that, that I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that a lot of people were saying, uh, for instance, um, uh, the U.S. is engaged in uh, syphilis studies with unknown, uh, or with people who don't know. There's, I don't think that there was a huge contingent of people who were saying that. And then when the research came out, or when the data came out, said, see, proven, right? I think it was more like, no, there's a conspiracy theory here that actually did happen, but we didn't know it happened until the data came out. Right, right. So here we're sort of bringing a, an important distinction between conspiracies that have been going on and the public is unaware and then we find out about them right. versus ones where the public believes it's aware of something and then waiting to see whether that evidence comes out. Right, right. So I actually, I, I did want to say that when soliciting questions for this show, as I do every week, I received a lot of responses from listeners generally questioning the entire premise of this episode. Uh, so for example, mm -hmm. uh, one question was considering the number of international conspiracies found to be historically true, why would anyone not believe conspiracies are still occurring? Or when does a conspiracy stop being a conspiracy and, and start being true? And given that these were by far the most common types of questions that we received, uh, I do want to give it some, mm -hmm. some time and consideration. So if we're talking about predicting a certain pattern of beliefs, which we're going to call conspiracy beliefs, does it matter whether they turn out to be true or not? Yeah, well, there's really, okay, so there's there's two ways to handle this as we as we move forward. I think there are two important things, I think, for, for listeners to know. I think we should start from the perspective that what prompted, I think, all of this was this article that you sent me that I had actually covered in some some social media threads over the summer in advance, or uh, yeah, I think over the summer, that that kind of prompted this, this research that found that angry people are more likely to believe conspiracy theories, right? And, and and we'll get we'll get to that article I know but but that article actually solves some of this problem for us in the context of the their particular study the broader question is fair in the sense that sure there there as we've said there are conspiracies that that have actually happened um those things and and believing in them is is reasonable i guess to me the the distinction just really comes back to what is the evidence you have for it and part of the problem is people continue part of the problem we have just globally and certainly in the united states is people refusing to believe um or or insisting on things being true that there is simply no evidence for or not enough evidence for. All right. So so I'm uh let me make sure that I'm I'm on the same page with you here. That the the belief structure uh around believing something to be true sans evidence 
is what we're interested in. And whether that ultimately proves to be true or not true is, is yeah. sort of moot. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, and I think that that is ultimately what this particular study did, right? The, the study explored, I mean, to, to, to deal with this problem, they were asking questions about things that there is no evidence for yet. Now, maybe in 10 years, we'll discover, nope, they were right all the time. I doubt that, especially because one of the things was just flat up made up, uh, flat out made up. Um, so one one conspiracy theory that they talked about was patently false and does not exist and, and isn't even an idea in people's minds. Um, so, I mean, I, but that said, I mean, I think ultimately that's how they address it is they were dealing with things that, that and, and asking people questions that there is no evidence for. Um, and I should just mention while we're while we're talking about this. So, yeah, I, I asked because the, the here's what happened from 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 my perspective on social media. I did a, a very, 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 very basic post where I just more or less gave the finding of the study. And my point was, hey, look angry people are more likely to believe conspiracy theories. And so what that means is that there are people out there who uh, are like actually might be motivated to make you mad, right? That it's in their best interest to try and make you mad. So that was the first post. People responded negatively to that, right? As you might imagine, not everybody, but some people did. So then I did a follow-up where I really broke this study down for them and said, here's how they did it, um, right? Which is always great to to respond to science deniers with more science, right? That's that's <laughs> usually the best, the best route. So I did that. And people responded to that one relatively negatively. And one of the things they kept saying was, isn't it interesting how most of these conspiracy theories turned out to be true? So that prompted me to ask, give me your examples. What are these conspiracy theories that turned out to be true? And that was actually really revealing. And I decided going into it, I'm not going to argue. I'm not, I, I don't, this isn't, I'm not going to get into fights with people. That isn't the point. I'm just going to, um, I'm just going to ask for their examples. And some were interesting. Some of them kind of fall into that category we talked about of, well, was this really a conspiracy theory or was this just a conspiracy? The world found out about it. And then, you know, so that sort of backward engineering. Um, so a lot of it fell into things that I would just say we don't have evidence yet to argue that this thing is actually true, right? So a lot of stuff about COVID being created in a lab, a lot of stuff about election fraud, uh, things that I think we've got really no evidence to to support the idea that it is that the conspiracy is accurate. Um, it, you know, but at the same time, the the people uh, responding to me certainly believe that there's evidence for that. Um, they would certainly say, whereas I would say maybe in some of these cases, the jury is still out. In some of these cases, I think the jury's back uh, and it just didn't happen. But in their in the minds of people responding, it was like, nope, we have gotten factual uh, evidence every now and then I would I wouldn't argue, but I would say, can you just give me some some data? Right. Like where where did this come from? Why do you believe this? And they would send me to an article or something that is just, I guess, the most polite way of saying it is far from mainstream, <laughs> um, you know, that would be uh, or or honestly, sometimes like a YouTube video of someone just 
sitting in their office talking or whatever. So just not not what I would consider a sufficient evidence. Oh man, so I, I'm I'm realizing that now we're just two people sat in our offices talking. <laughs> How dare I? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I I was about to say basement, but that felt felt like too much of a cliche. So uh, at least we're not in our basement. That's true. It's true. I have a window right behind me yeah. that you can't see at home, but I do. Um, so thanks so much uh, for sharing that your your experiences there on on social media. And actually, um, I'm gonna gonna share some some percentages here now mm-hmm. on on how common. Um, conspiracy beliefs are. And I want to see whether these uh, these percentages surprise you after your experience. Uh, so luckily, there is actually a decent amount of data uh, on how common conspiracy beliefs hmm. are endorsed in both uh, my home country, the UK, and in the USA. And you might be surprised to know that conspiracy theories are not only a US phenomenon. Hmm. Uh, so when asking people from Great Britain to what extent they agree or disagree with a conspiracy, a minority of the British public indicated that they believed in individual conspiracy theories. So, for example, 8% of Britons agree with the statements that the AIDS virus was created and spread around the world on purpose by a secret group. And 14% believe that humans have made contact with aliens, but this fact has been deliberately hidden from the public. But although only a minority of people believe in any specific conspiracy theory, 55% of British people believe in at least one of the conspiracy theories that they asked about. And it's a similar story here in America. So 52% of Americans believe in at least one conspiracy, but people tend to be quite discerning about which they believe in. For example, 19% of Americans believe that 9-11 was an inside job, and 13% believe that climate change is a hoax. So do these numbers surprise you? Yeah, that that is really, really interesting. And those are some really good examples of of things I would consider to be conspiracy theories. Um, But I also so I don't know if those I guess there was one the inside job one that surprised me. Um, I I know that belief is out there. I I would not have guessed it. What was it? Nineteen percent. Yeah, that that feels higher than I would have anticipated. Um, You know, part of what Part of what those examples really did for me, though, is think about how how and why sometimes people believe these things to be true. And so let me let me I'm going to use the the AIDS crisis example for a while. I remember I'm old enough to remember that uh, belief being quite present. Right now, here's the thing: I would argue that in the aftermath of the 1980s and throughout the 90s, one of the things we did realize about the AIDS crisis is that the United States government did very, very little to prevent the spread and had a what I would consider a very, very, very inadequate response to that crisis. And I suspect that that inadequate response was motivated by their perceptions that um, the the virus was going to harm um, non-white and gay people. And so there is a lack of interest in, in fighting it the way they would fight other things. Now, I fully get that those are, are my, my interpretations of things. That is not the same, though, as the conspiracy theory, right? Which is that it was being intentionally spread ar- around the world or, or wh- however it was phrased there. Like what, I, what appears to have happened and what I, I believe I would endorse is not the same as the, the, the original conspiracy theory, theory you described. But I think that in some people's minds, they interpret 
what I described as proof that it was intentionally spread. You know that they it sort of gets warped into see it was intentional. They didn't care. I mean, you you more or less just admitted it, right? That they're they're not necessarily seeing the nuance in those the, or the distinctions between those two things. You know, in the 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 same thing um, might be said about um, uh, COVID and the lab example, right? So it, it, people saying COVID was created in a lab. A report comes out and says that basically jury's still out, don't know if COVID might have been created in a lab. And what people see is, aha, see, it might have been created in a lab, which turns into an endorsement of or or the factual proof, quote unquote, that uh, that that belief was true. So I think that's where like there's a there's a lack of nuance in people's thinking uh, about how to interpret the actual data. Um, that that it ends up exacerbating those things. Yeah, yeah, and I think that the the conspiracy theories, when they exist, they're such an amorphous kind of blob, right? Mm-hmm. So, so getting someone to write down exactly what their conspiracy yes. is is going to be slightly different from each person. So then, when the evidence comes out down the line, it may. Mm-hmm. Um, fit a tiny subset of maybe part of that giant conspiracy theory and is then taken as evidence of the whole thing. Yep, exactly. I mean, I think you could do that with election fraud as well, you know, that because, and again, like we're not dealing with, with one person who has one belief. We're dealing with literally millions of people who have a set of beliefs about what election fraud may have looked like. And then the consequence of that is that, okay, so yeah, it's this amorphous blob, as you described it, of different types of beliefs. And then, of course, you're going to see some data, some evidence that sort of supports this claim, right? You might see, um, you know, uh, hear a story about a clerk who got caught throwing ballots away. Right. I don't know if that really happened. I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe I'm just exacerbating the problem right now. But you might hear a story about something that and then that is like, see, there's proof. Right. And um, or 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 some like this evidence comes out. But that isn't that piece of data. That story I just told isn't evidence of a broad conspiracy to commit a, a election fraud. It's a, but people might use it to sort of justify that belief system. Yeah, you know, you're making me think of my research methods class. So so uh, one of the things I teach in research methods is about uh, theories mm-hmm. and how individual pieces of data can not disprove the entire theory, mm-hmm. probably, uh, that they might lead to it being adjusted. But, you know, there's the theory in itself is probably never going to be uh, totalitarily, uh, completely disproven right. or completely proven. And I and and it hits me that it's a conspiracy theory. It works right. in the same right. way. It's a it's a theory that we we can uh, only really ever test a certain little part of it. Yeah. And the um, the whole thing will continue to hang. Yep. Even if we maybe disprove a little part mm-hmm. of it, it'll just shift around and turn into something. Yeah. Else. You know, here's a gripe. I'm gonna if anyone from the American Psychological Association is listening, I'm gonna I'm gonna voice a gripe. Um, and that is that. In in uh, the original version of undergraduate learning out, uh, outcomes for uh, psychology majors, they had this phrase that I absolutely loved uh, that read uh, tolerance for ambiguity, that part of what it meant to be a psychology major was to develop yeah. this tolerance for ambiguity. And 
if I'm wrong, I will apologize later. Um, but I'm fairly confident that that phrase was removed from the second uh, round of learning outcomes. And it's, oh, no. I know, and it's always bummed me out because I think that that in particular is is one of the most valuable skills that we can be teaching students right now to learn to 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 understand that um science to quote uh, the late scott lillianfeld who was once on this show and one of the things he said is science scientific findings are provisional i hope i'm not misquoting him but essentially like yeah we we have them and we have them until we disprove them um and uh, and we have to be comfortable with the fact that we don't have all of the answers and that sometimes there's gray areas and there's sometimes there's uncertainty. And I think actually how this all links back to uh, conspiracy theories, I think that's part of the, the problem right now is we, we have there's obviously deficits in information literacy. But there's also a real intolerance for ambiguity. People don't like not having the answers. And so they they grab onto something and they blow it up to mean much more than it might actually mean. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking of, of uh, the example you were talking about earlier about COVID-19 and its origins. And I'm thinking, you know, early on, these ideas started circulating, you know, it's a lab leak or, mm -hmm. or not. And and this was so early on, nobody could know. Right. The data just wasn't there yet. And so you, you did have to have a tolerance for ambiguity. Right. You had to be able to sit and think, you know, I don't know how this how this happened, but there was a desire in the media and in the general psyche to to want to know yes. immediately yep. uh, what the cause was. We we really really try and fill gaps in our knowledge with whatever we can, and I mean this is this is rooted in our the a really really great thing about human beings is how curious we are. But the problem is sometimes we're so curious that we fill those gaps with misinformation. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring us back on 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 track now. <laughs> uh, so so far we have been talking about the endorsement of specific conspiracy beliefs, but I do want to talk about another way to measure whether somebody's a conspiracy theorist, and they did this in the article Ooh. as well, and that's to ask how much they generally believe that there is a secret, powerful group of people who is really controlling world events. Uh, and it turns out I have some stats on this, too, mm -hmm. that if you ask this uh, more general question, 47 percent of British people agree and 46 percent of Americans mm -hmm. are pretty similar across the pond there. But that is almost half the population. It makes me think again about the perception of conspiracy beliefs as niche beliefs. So like what it, it actually makes me think about, you know, when scholars refer to things as women's issues, and this really bugs me because something that impacts half of the population is not a women's issue. It's like a full size regular issue. <laughs> Just a regular issue. And, yeah. and in the same way, if almost half of the population endorses conspiracy thinking, maybe this isn't so much of an alternative way of thinking, but a regular way of thinking, another variant of normal. All right. So here I'm going to ask a favor. Can you go back? How do they word the question? Um, ask people the extent to which they believe that there is a secret group of powerful people who is really controlling world events. Okay. Okay. So I was at the reason I'm, I'm uh, the reason I asked you to do that is I wanted to, I wanted to answer it for myself. Like if I was, if I was given that question, would I say true or false or yes or no? Mm -hmm. What would you, what would you, I would say no, honestly, now that I hear it again, I would say no, but, but with some caveats, what, what would you say if you heard that question? 
I think I'd say no, but only because of the word secret. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah. If a group of powerful people who control world events, yes, I'd go with that. But I don't think that they're actually very good at keeping themselves secret. I don't yeah. think that there is, you know, yep. I don't think we're that good. I'm trying to think about, you know, government <laughs> leaks all the time. Yep. You know, they're just not that good at hiding right. their nefarious intentions. Yep. That, that is actually, uh, so there's two, one is the word secret. The other thing is I would say is I, I don't think that this group quote unquote is quite as organized as the study makes it seem. I don't know if it's just one group. I mean, that makes it sound like there's like six people sitting around a, a, a table in a fancy layer or something. That's not like, I'm not, I'm not envisioning a world of bond villains uh, so much as I'm thinking there's just, really, really, really wealthy people who have the ear of world leaders and and have a powerful influence on policymaking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that, yeah, some of that happens in secret. I, I don't, but otherwise it does make it sound like it's like, you know, 20 people sitting around a giant table voting and uh, on on how to proceed and I, that's not what i think you know so I, I guess there's a version of that i get what i'm getting at is there's a version of that question that i would say true to and be part of that 46% or 47% it's just not quite the question that was asked so it doesn't sound that outrageous to me that it's almost half the population believes that yeah so another thing I wanted to, to push back on and, and talk about during this episode was this uh, tendency for, for um, and I think you were getting a bit of this in the social media posts, for it to seem like academics are sitting in their ivory tower telling the general population that they're thinking about things wrong. Uh, and, and one of the interesting um, statistics I, I dug up when I was prepping for this episode was that people of a lowest socioeconomic class were more likely to endorse conspiracies than those from a higher socioeconomic class. Uh, and so that means they're more likely to say that there is this secret organization uh, running right. the world. So I, I wonder, do you have any ideas of, of why this might be? And second, is it a problem? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I would, I'll answer the second part and say, yeah, I do think it's a problem. Um, so I, I suspect, here's what I want to believe is the issue because it seems the most solvable, though still not very solvable. And that is that this is really a question of information privilege, that um, we know that human beings do not have equal access to information, right? Some things are behind paywalls, some things are behind. And and the danger there is um, that, you know, if you don't have access to uh, this will be a controversial choice, but the New York Times or the Washington Post or something like that, well, then it's not that you just decide, well, I guess I'll stay uninformed. I mean, you 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 go find some evidence, some data you can get access to. And maybe that data is, or that information is going to be flawed. Uh, and so I suspect that that is, is a, a big piece of what's happening is that there's just a lack of access to um, accurate information uh, driving things. Um, there's probably more to it than that. Um, but but that would be one of my one of my primary guesses. Yeah. So I uh, while you were saying that, I just went on to check whether the article that we're about to talk about is behind a paywall, and it is. Yep. yep. <laughs> so it's a wonderful example so, of, of knowledge being limited access here. 
and I'm going to use this as an example to praise you, Allison Jane, because I know, like me, one of your goals has been to get that information out there to the public as best you can. And that's the value of the work you're doing right now is, is yes, this is behind a paywall. And so if people want to go read the original article, they've got to do that. Um, but we're giving them and you're giving them, uh, the, the, I think, what I would consider the critical information for free. Well, let's let's go ahead and actually do that then, because we haven't done that yet. So let me in introduce this paper. Uh, so this was published this year in 2023 uh, by a team of international researchers in Australia and in Poland. And to summarize very quickly their results, they found that people who were generally more angry, so people high in trait anger, were more likely to endorse conspiracy beliefs. And they also found that when they triggered a state of anger, made people angry in the moment, this, this also made them more likely to believe uh, in conspiracies. So Ryan, so glad to have you being an anger expert. Could you tell us about why, why anger might lead to these thought patterns? Yeah, so let, let's quickly um, make sure people understand the difference between trait and state anger, which I think is really important to this study. Um, and and especially it was important to some of the responses I got uh, when I talked about this study online too. So trait anger, it can be thought of as like a personality trait. Like uh, I'm an angry person, right? I get angry more often. I maybe get more intensely angry. There's even you know a fair amount of data that says I, I would have more negative, con if I'm high on trait anger, I'd have more negative consequences as a result of my anger, right? Just expressing it poorly. So that tends to be how we think of trait anger as like a personality trait that that way. State anger, because as you know, Alison Jane, and as the listeners know, state anger is um, everybody gets angry sometimes. And so state anger is when you're sort of uh, angry in the moment, right? You are provoked in some way and you get mad and that anger comes out. So um, what this study looked at most of the time, so it's actually four different studies in the same paper, and what it was looking at most of the time was actually trait anger. So this was important because I think what a lot of people responded to when I when I shared the results is, well, they're mad because they're being lied to. And it's like, yeah, that isn't exactly how this study was measuring things, right? The study was just looking at overall sort of angry personality, and then do you uh, endorse these particular beliefs? Now, two of the studies are almost identical in this in this paper, where they just look at the relationship between trait anger and COVID conspiracy theories, found basically the angrier your personality, the more likely you were to endorse COVID-related uh, beliefs. It is worth noting um, that, that effect was relatively small. Right. It was not a, a really, really significant. Uh, I mean, it was significant, but it was not a huge uh, effect. So it's not as though we're saying, hey, look, anger is everything here. It's just one piece of a, a much bigger puzzle. The third piece uh, the third study, they did basically the same thing, but they broadened it out to look at just other conspiracy theories more broadly. Um, and so uh, a little bit broader uh, focus than just covid. Um, and again, found essentially the same thing. And then the fourth study, which to me is is the most interesting and also sort of the um, what I consider kind of the dagger uh, as far as really, really driving the point home is basically this is where they added state anger to, to the mix. So they looked at trade anger um, and they looked to see whether or not people believed in this case something that was 
purely made up, right? I think it was what that there's a military base in the uh, uh, underneath the Berlin airport, right? Which they had made up. So part of me wants it to be true, just so like you know, I imagine the researchers having like you know people come to their office and say like, "Hey, you were a little too close to home on this one," um, <laughs> but but uh, you know something that they just flat out made up. And what they found is that, so what they did is they actually induced anger. This is something we can sometimes do in the lab. It's uh, where you actually, in the in the research experience, make the participant a little bit angry. And then they look to see, do they are they more likely to endorse this belief in those circumstances? And what they found is that people who are high on trade anger and were angry in the moment, so high on state anger, we're likely to believe that uh, that w- conspiracy theory, this the the one about the Berlin airport. So again, really sort of driving the point home that that is not one that you can argue is true, right? They made it up. Um, whereas the other ones, perhaps we can argue, but that one is just made up. So it does sort of drive this point home that there's some link between anger and uh, and our our belief in conspiracies. Yeah. So. Can uh, maybe uh, sort of cognitive biases that accompany anger make someone more susceptible to disinformation? Yeah. So uh, this is a. Um, it's funny. I, I just described for you how we can make people a little bit mad in the lab, um, and it's one of the things that's really interesting. I actually wrote a whole chapter uh, on this in in my first book, and and the reason I did is because I am sort of obsessed with. Um, based on personal experiences, I am obsessed with um, the irrational things people will think and say when they are really, really angry. Um, and you can, I mean, they are all over YouTube. Uh, you can find videos of people like sort of in a rant, really just doing and saying things that just are wildly irrational in the moment, right? And so now the problem is, this is almost impossible to study in the lab. Um, mainly because just ethically and for other reasons, you just can't make people that mad in the lab, as mad as we would need them to get to really hit that threshold at which they are are uh, uh, sort of over overreacting the way we're talking about or endorsing these really, really wild, irrational beliefs. But we do seem to have some pretty good evidence based on a handful of studies about how people will make worse decisions when they're angry um, based on some, interestingly, some research that looks at sort of provoking people, but also um, getting them a little bit drunk to see sort of what happens when we shut down part of the part of the brain that is um, associated with uh, controlling those emotional responses. That sounds like such a fun study to be a researcher on. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we we get a sense for sort of how people react uh, when when their anger system kind of overrides their rational thought system. It's not as much of a sense as I would ideally like to have. Um, but I do think that's part of what's going on is that when a person's angry and both um, uh, both trade anger, when they're an angry person and when they're uh, induced to state anger, that that their capacity for rational thought is is overridden a, a little bit um, and that it has that impact 
uh, on what's going off. They become a little bit more uh, closed off uh, to to other people's perspectives. They just engage in some more irrational thinking that way. Yeah. So, Ryan, you've you've made a bit of a name for yourself um, talking about anger and how anger isn't always a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So in the context of conspiracy theories, does anger serve a functional purpose or is it only detrimental to rational thought? Yeah, that's a a great question. And this is actually where I mean, uh, you're right. I've my argument is is consistently been anger isn't inherently bad for you. Uh, It has some upside. Um, and I stand by that. I think that is is certainly true. But I also think what what is clear is that anger does have some downside. And that intense, intense anger to the point that you uh, have lost your capacity for rational thought, um, where you are doing and saying things that just aren't rooted in reason, um, can be really damaging. Now, it interestingly, that phenomenon, I would argue, comes from the same place, though, which is when you're angry, your inclination is to defend yourself and to defend uh, others you care about. And I think that may manifest itself in protecting your beliefs uh, and that you become more closed off to new information because you are feeling particularly fragile. And so, you you know, that's the 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 danger, I guess, or one of the dangers of that that level of intensity. Um, and I just I'm curious, Allison, Jane, if you've ever been in, in a, a position where you've you've had an angry reaction. And maybe an hour later, maybe the next day or whatever, you sort of realized, yeah, that was, I overreacted or I, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I I, I think that um, I go for a walk and I come back from the walk and I realize that I definitely overreact. Yeah. I like to think that age is helping uh, mm-hmm. with that um, somewhat. Uh, I, I can recover faster from a bout of anger maybe or temper it faster i don't know if there's evidence on that that that's something that goes with age but yeah definitely have uh, had that problem in my life yeah i mean it's really common and it's and it really results from the fact that i mean i i know it's an oversimplification to sort of talk about the two parts of your brain or anything silly like that but there is a, a general sense that like if if your emotional system is is activated that yeah, some of your rational capacity just goes away at least momentarily, and and you you might do or think things that just aren't true. Yeah, and I think I've said this to you before. I don't sure if it was off air or on that uh, anger is one of my least favorite emotions um, because it makes me feel like I can't control yeah. my thoughts or my my actions. Uh, and and I'm thinking of that now in the context of what you're saying about I have a real. Um, joy that I'm a rational person. I like to think of myself mm-hmm. as a scientist and rational. And so when the anger strikes, it takes away a part of myself that I really heavily identify and want to be. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I love that. I mean, that's a, that's a, it, both because I, I mean, uh, well, I love both the sort of self-recognition that that might be kind of the connection there, but also just the acknowledgement that, um, this emotion maybe puts you in a place that you don't want to be, I think is really fascinating. Yeah, no, I find it, I find it one of the hardest emotions. It's just uh, one of the reasons <laughs> I think the work you do is so cool. Oh, thank um, you. 
And actually, uh, this is this is so interesting, and it, it really makes me want to bring up some statistics that I found uh, on the endorsement of specific conspiracy beliefs in the UK around the time of Brexit. So mm. uh, Brexit was a very angry time. Um, there was a lot of anger in the UK. Um, and at the same time, 55% of Britons agreed with the statement that the government is deliberately hiding the truth about how many immigrants really live in this country. So an endorsement of a conspiracy belief. And also 52% agreed with the view that officials in the European Union are gradually seeking to take over all lawmaking powers of this country. So in fact, what's really interesting is these numbers, 52% actually mirrors the final Brexit vote. Uh, that was really? the, the majority that, that voted to exit uh, with the slim majority voting to, to leave the EU. So I wonder to what extent do you think that anger might have played a role in increasing endorsement of these conspiracy beliefs, anger at, in this case, the political situation? So so let me ask, okay, so I'm I'm, this one's way outside. I, I know very little about about Brexit, I guess we'll start there. So in your estimation, are either of those two things true? I mean, do you is there evidence that the government was hiding the true number of immigrants? And is there are they trying to take over all lawmaking? Um, I, I think it's one of those ones where there is no evidence that it is true, but you probably couldn't conclusively prove that it wasn't. OK, OK. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's Especially, and I'm curious when you say Brexit was a very angry time, was it? Do you mean like anger between the two, between the 52 and 48 percent that there was yes. animosity there? Yes, and and much different. So at least what I find here in the states with political polarization, this really split families. Uh, so mm. my own family, for example, my dad was a Brexiter and my mom was a Remainer. And this was very true in a lot of households, which actually like led to real conflict in 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 the house, uh, in a way that I feel like polarization here it tends to be more by community, and so you don't yeah. really live with somebody with polar opposite views, and and that I really led to a lot of arguments and fights in my own family and in lots of other people's families too. Mm. Well, and, and you know, part of what is really interesting about that to me is, I mean, I, I'm a a firm believer that like what happens the, the the decisions of politicians make a big difference in our day-to-day -day life i mean i i um and so i'm i'm always aware of that however in this instance right we have my understanding is like we have a vote and that vote is going to dramatically reshape kind of the day-to-day -day lived experiences of everybody involved, right? So it, in, in, is that a fairest description of kind of how it went down? Yeah, although I think part of the disagreement was the extent to which it would reshape oh, uh, interesting. the world with the two sides having very different opinions on whether this really would be a big change or okay. not. Okay, yeah. So I can understand why there would be so much, uh, why there would be just a lot of emotions tied up in that right i mean it's tied up in um i mean a lot of anger at, at the other side why don't you see it the way i do is oftentimes a, a driving force there but also just a lot of sadness and maybe some hopelessness i mean if you're someone who this is going to have a considerable impact on and you don't feel like people are hearing that or seeing that i can understand why those emotions would really be tied up there um uh, yeah, I mean, I have to imagine then that the anger does exacerbate all of those 
uh, all those opinions, much like I think the anger exacerbated attitudes towards COVID um, that disconnected from even the, you know, the, the government conspiracy piece, just anger over the situation and anxiety over the situation probably exacerbated the the tendency to um, believe things that were uh, either false or unproven. Yeah, and I'm I'm liking your use of the word exacerbate here because I'm seeing this as sort of a a, a, a spiral of, of mm-hmm. making things worse. So you have the the anger, which might increase the likelihood of endorsing this conspiracy, and then believing the conspiracy is going to make you angrier, and and round and round it goes, um, getting worse and worse. Yep, absolutely. So taking this into the American context, where you're hopefully more of an more of an <laughs> expert rather than trying to get you to comment on stuff from my home country. Uh, do you think that uh, anger or maybe a, a lack of feeling heard or represented by politicians in D.C. might lead to an increase in conspiracy thinking in the U.S.? I, I definitely do. I mean, I think that I mean, I think we have sort of a perfect storm right now for um, for believing uh, misinformation, conspiracy theories, however we want to think about this, because we we. One, we have elected officials who are motivated to make us angry. And and I say that not specifically because of, um, you know, there's a study, this study came out probably more than 10 years ago, um, but basically found people are more likely to click on a political ad if that ad makes them angry, right? So, mm-hmm. and there's a financial benefit there. Right? I mean, it's, they can get more bang for their buck if they're putting out ads that make you angry. So we've got politicians who who benefit from that. We have increasingly segmented um, uh, access to information. So some people are getting more and better information than others or different information than others um, through various media channels. It just it feels like you put those things together. I mean, I, I suspect that a lot of the reason people believe COVID stories uh, or or unproven COVID facts, uh, that's, that wasn't the right description, unproven COVID statements um, is because they are um, they're told that they're true all the time. Right. Or led to believe that they're true all the time from elected officials, sometimes from reputable media outlets and so on. And so, you know, of course, they continue uh, to believe them. So I do think that it's just going to continue that that cycle is going to continue to to drive things until there's a there's a change somehow. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. I'm I'm mindful of the time and that and that we we don't have much more of it left. But there is one question from the audience that I I want to ask mm-hmm. you because I think it's a really important one. Uh, and so this question is I'll just read it aloud. How do you validate someone's feelings without agreeing with a conspiracy? Yeah. Uh, sorry, that is a great question and one I wish I had like a better answer to. Um, Okay, so in my life, I'm going to go back to something I said before about ambiguity and nuance. In my life, I very, very much value and try to encourage in my kids and in in myself and my students the idea that we that we just have to take that that life is about nuance and context, and we have to take all of those things into account. And things are rarely sort of fit as perfectly uh, as as we think they are. Or and so. With that in mind, I think sometimes my goal with people um, is 
to be similarly nuanced, to say, I can sense that you are frustrated. I can sense that you are scared. I, I feel differently about this particular thing. And I don't think the evidence is there to support what you're saying right now, but I can tell you believe it and your belief in it is really, really causing you consternation or or whatever. I, I just, I don't, because I don't, I also have a rule that I'm not going to co-sign someone else's BS and I'm not going to tell someone that like, yep, I agree with you or you are right, or even kind of give them um, the passive sense that they are right. Um, Cause I don't think that's fair to them either. Yeah, no, I, I don't know if we can say BS on the air, but you said it. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with that. You know, you know, I stopped short of just saying the whole thing. So I did that for you. I didn't, I didn't, I don't know if you're planning a G rated show or yeah. what. Appreciate <laughs> that, right? Uh, so uh, just to wrap things up, is there one central idea or message that you want listeners to take away from today's episode? Nuance and context. Like, give. You know, in in responsibility, I think I, I think it's it's so important for people before they go out and tell the world the way a thing is that they just pay attention to nuance, that they pay attention to context, and that they understand like how complicated things really often are. And I think that's where the the responsibility piece comes in. Is that I also think that you know the goal the goal should always be to to have a correct understanding of the world if 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 research comes out tomorrow that definitively says that covid was created in a lab and that I, i'll change my opinion i will and i and i just but until then or that the election was fraudulent i'll change my opinion i i really will but that data that evidence has to come out first and and I think that like just being willing to to sort of tolerate that ambiguity, to to be uncertain, um, but then also to um, kind of, uh, I don't know, own the damage you've done um, by espousing incorrect beliefs. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Uh, and, and I just want to give a, a huge thank you to you again for returning to psychology and stuff and answering our questions from listeners. It's been so great to get into this with somebody who also appreciates uh, tolerating ambiguity. Um, so Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin and the production manager is Rachel Scray. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek and our graphic designer is Kimberly Felice. Special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Ryan Martin. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all of our shows. I'm your host, Allison Jane Martin-Gano. Keep being amazing.